Korea has not been the only battleground since the end of the Second World War. Men have fought and died in Malaya, in Greece, in the Philippines, in Algeria, and Cuba, and Cyprus, and almost continuously on the Indo-Chinese Peninsula. No nuclear weapons have been fired. No massive nuclear retaliation has been considered appropriate. This is another type of warfare, new in its intensity, ancient in its origin, war by guerrillas, subversives, insurgents, assassins, war by ambush instead of by combat, by infiltration instead of aggression, seeking victory by eroding and exhausting the enemy instead of engaging him. It is a form of warfare uniquely adapted to what has been strangely called wars of liberation. To undermine the effort of new and poor countries to maintain the freedom that they have finally achieved. It preys on economic unrest and ethnic conflicts. It requires in those situations where we must counter it. You may hold a position of command with our special forces, forces which are too unconventional to be called conventional, forces which are growing in number and important and significant. And these are the kinds of challenges that will be before us in the next decade. If freedom is to be saved, it requires a whole new kind of strategy, a wholly different kind of force, and therefore a new and wholly different kind of military training. Before we begin, I would like to invite the listeners of the show to become a supporter, and you can support uh, with a small monthly donation, and this will help sustain future episodes. If that's something that you're interested in doing, you can go to www.anchor.fm slash Global Recon, and there's a support icon on there, and you can set that up that way. If supporting is not something you want to do uh, financially, just share the episodes with your friends and family. Uh, leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We have a very special episode for you guys. Uh, this episode is being co-hosted by Ron Mars. Uh, by the time this episode goes up, you would have heard the episode with Ron Mars, and, and we go into who he is and, and what his experiences are. Uh, and he served for years in special operations uh, at the tier one level, it's great to have Ron on. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Henry Thompson. Uh, Thompson served for a number of years in the United States Army, and he's also served in Vietnam as a team leader for MACV SOG. Um, so we're very honored to have you on, sir. Well, thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Ron, you there? Yep. Yep. John, hey, thank you very much. I definitely appreciate this, man. You're a, uh, you're a, uh, a valued patriot of, uh, all of ours. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. 
so, um, you know, it's like I said, it's an honor to have you on here, uh, especially having my friend Ron Mars on here as well. And he served in various um, leadership roles in combat for a Tier 1 organization. In many ways, Mac V. Sog is the precursor to today's Tier 1 unit. Um, can we talk about your path into Sog? Um, yeah, I guess <laughs> I'll make it short, but uh, it probably started when I was about four years old. Um, my uh, family all were uh, military uh World War II and uh, Korea. So I heard a, a lot about the military uh, starting when I was very young. Um, didn't take long to hear about uh, Rangers and decided that, you know, that's probably something I'd want to do uh, at some point. I grew up on a farm playing in the woods, tracking animals, spending the night outside by myself and things like that. So I, I was kind of on a path to get me ready to um, do that kind of work. Uh, after high school, went to uh, college on the chemistry scholarship, but Vietnam was going hot and heavy. I didn't want to miss out on that. I felt that uh, I needed to go uh, do my part. So I took a break from school and uh, joined the Army in January 67 and uh, went in with a guaranteed uh, slide in the chemical corps. And that lasted about a week, and I thought, that's not what I want to do. I want to, uh, you know, go do some really neat things. So I went through uh, basic training, then uh, advanced uh, infantry. And from there, uh, they told me I really needed to go to OCS. So I went to OCS, um, graduated from there in uh, January 68. 68 is when the uh, Tet Offensive started in Vietnam. Um, to all of a sudden the casualty rate went to between two to 300 Americans killed a week. And you could get pretty much anything you wanted. So I asked to go to airborne school, go to special forces. Uh, from special forces, then I, I asked to go to ranger training. And from there, I volunteered to go to Vietnam. So they uh, moved me out very quickly. When I got to uh, Vietnam, all the friends that I had there that had gone before me uh, all said, whatever you do, don't volunteer for uh, SOG. That's some top secret organization. And if you go there, you don't live long. So you're, you're better off not volunteering. Of course, I volunteered. Um, and basically, <laughs> what happened, you know, being special forces, um, that gave me an opportunity to go there if I was willing to uh, sign a volunteer statement and also sign a, a non-disclosure that I wouldn't talk about anything that I saw, heard, or did uh, for 20 years. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, I mean, that should have been a sign that uh, might among, not be a great place many. to go to. <laughs> so, um, I, I, it kind of... Uh, speaks to my intelligence or lack of it maybe you know when you sign something like that but um so that that got me in uh, eventually got up to the forward operating base where uh, i would be working from and all the people that uh, went to that uh, fob at the same time i did 
were pulled out and sent to what was called a one zero school or a team leader school mm-hmm. uh, where they were taught how to be a team leader. And when I said, well, what about me? They said, well, I mean, you're a ranger. You don't need to go to that school. We're putting you on a team and you're going to work. So, um, you know, the next day I got assigned to a team. But being an officer, they had a a task that I needed to perform first. They sent me over to the supply room and said um, there were some personal effects of some people we had lost that, that week that needed to be inventoried by an officer. They handed me seven duffel bags. The first one I picked up uh, belonged to a friend of mine that had come over from Fort Bragg about 30 days before me. So I thought, wow, you know, I mean, he's been here 30 days and he's already gone. So kind of got my attention there. But um, then, you know, I was put on a team, started training with a team. And the way SOG worked, it didn't matter what your rank was. When you first went on a team, you had to be vetted. So you couldn't just step onto a team and and be a team leader. So you had to go out several times with a team and have the team leader say, yeah, you were you were ready to to lead a team. So I went out as the uh, assistant team leader um, on about four missions before uh, I actually became uh, a team leader. And you know, like you mentioned in the beginning, SOG. SOG was the the tier one special ops unit uh, at that time. And you had mostly special forces guys from the Army. You had uh, SEALs involved in it. uh, CIA was involved in it. So there were a lot of missions going on, but it was all, you know, special ops uh, kind of people. The missions were conducted outside of Vietnam. That's where you were assigned. That's where your base unit was. Uh, but when you ran a SOG mission, it went into another country, into Southeast Asia, depending on what your target might be. So, um, yeah, it was interesting. Know. We we were speaking on uh, on Instagram on the comments, and um, I had mentioned that I had a friend, and he's a good friend of mine, who was a team leader for um, Recon Team Michigan. And, yep. and CCN, and then you uh, you wrote back, oh really? I was a team leader on Michigan, and I'm like, wow, what a small world! And uh, I explained to you who he was, and then it turns out you took over the team from him when he was wounded after he was wounded on a mission, uh, which right. is, which is crazy. Yeah, it's uh, strange very, how things happen like that. Yeah. Very small world. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say it was um it was his last. Uh, I think that was his was supposed to be his last mission of his tour, uh, and then he was wounded. And it, you know, and like many SOG missions, for anyone who's ever read any of the books or learned any of the history, uh, it usually ends in um, a, a small team of Americans, and. Um, just just being overrun i mean fighting you know hundreds of people and calling in airstrikes basically on your position um and you know it's just really really crazy um some of the the stories from the the sog missions 
definitely crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, Dr. Dr. Thompson, what the uh, I was uh, which which fob did you go to first when uh, uh, when you when you first got into uh, Vietnam? Well, I, I went up to uh, FOB one at uh, Fubai. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, that's yeah, that's amazing. And and uh, what which uh, which month? Uh, uh, how how long after the attack in uh, in August on four? Uh, were you were you on the ground? Yeah, I I got there and I and I went there to four FOB four. You know, that's where we in process into SOG. Um, I got there. I think September October. Everyone was still talking about it. It was still fresh. There was still debris scattered around. Um, and if you don't know what we're talking about, that was that's still at this point. Uh, the worst day in Special Forces history in terms of the number of Special Forces casualties uh, in one day. So uh, the bad guys came into that uh, camp uh, during the night, attacked about two o'clock in the morning. Um, and by the time it was daylight, there were 17 uh, Special Forces uh, dead, uh, close to 60 uh, indigenous personnel did a hundred and something. Um, North Vietnamese were dead. Uh, just a, a tremendous battle that went on for a few hours there before uh, daylight. Um, they they blew up a building that just left the the concrete pad that it was on. That had been marked on their map as the officers' uh, building. But the officers had been moved out of that building over to another one so it could be have some renovation done on it or they would have taken out all the officers, you know, that morning. So uh, it, it was a terrible raid uh, and, and damage. But, yeah, people were still talking about it. I was, um, I guess, fortunate to have uh, have missed that. I can I can I mean, I can only imagine, obviously, if you go and you compare the. The loss of life, and in you know my my particular community, would be uh, the the shooting down of uh, the extortion uh, forty seven in Afghanistan. Right. Uh, yeah. When all when all the guys were on it, and it's and, and I think back to uh, you know if you place yourself in in the Vietnam era where uh, information doesn't flow as quickly as it does today, and um, you don't get the exact details as rapidly as you might. Uh, you might desire, especially as being a uh, in the in the community as a team member, and how that must have impacted the, you know, all the special forces folks that were either in training or you know in theater or preparing to go over. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the word, you know, obviously spread a lot slower then than it, it does today. But um, you know, for the for the people there that I encountered, you know, when I first got on site. Um, I mean, it was devastating uh, to the survivors. I mean, there are tons of people, you know, wounded yeah. uh, in addition. So, uh, but I went on up to Alpha B1. Everybody there, uh, you know, was very aware of it. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was not a good thing. What was the, well, I tell you, the, what people often ask me is, is uh, what it was like, um, like what it is when you when you get to Afghanistan, you get to Iraq, you get to these places, and uh, what what was it like doing operations? And it's it's funny because when I tell them, I usually tell people it's kind of like walking on the moon. 
and they 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 look at me kind of strangely and they say, "What do you, what do you mean walking on the moon?" And they say, "Well, you're you're out in the middle of the desert. You're you know you're going to you're going somewhere to to uh, you know either capture or attack those who are attacking us." And in because of the sand and the texture and these kind of things, but when you think of it in the context of Southeast Asia, it's it's as as 180 out, I think, as you could possibly get. Me, meaning, how much, you know, what I know about jungle warfare and how difficult that environment just must have been, especially in, you know, the, the late 1960s, early 70s. Yeah, it was it was very different, particularly um, as you went north, as you went north into. Uh, Cambodia into North Vietnam, up in into that area where you really got into the, excuse me, double and triple canopy jungle, uh, and it rained. You know, it, it rained just about every day, so it was like being in a rainforest. Everything was wet. Everything was muddy, and um, you know, I I've talked to um, some people from Afghanistan, and and one of them heard me say something one day about firing a lot on automatic and he said why did you shoot so much on automatic and i said well you got to understand that unlike afghanistan where you can see people out in front of your ways in the jungle you might be 20 feet from them when you see them the first time and yes. you might not even see them you see muzzle flashes coming out of the vegetation so you don't shoot one time i mean yeah. you know i would i would put three or four rounds at a time wherever i thought they were um you know and kind of hope to hit them so i i fired a lot of you know for three sure. four or five round bursts for sure um, i think if i think in that environment if you'd uh, if you'd ask me what the desired load would be if i, I if i told you i could carry a thousand rounds i'd carry a thousand <laughs> rounds uh, yeah well yeah. i mean i carried you know it, when i first got there we just had the 20 round magazines uh, oh that's used, right the 20 rounds yeah, car 15, 20, yep. 20 round magazine. I carry it's a, uh, most missions. I'd carry fifty magazines. Fifty wow. magazines. Yeah, because we were so far out, so far away from anything that when we made contact, it might be an hour or more, uh, you know, before we we got close uh, air support. I mean, we. Yeah. They would divert whatever was flying to us because we would yeah. become the number one mission in Southeast Asia because we wasn't supposed to be where we were. Sure. Um, but, you sure. know, it, it might be an F-4 coming in with 750-pound bombs or whatever yeah. load they happened to have at that time when they were diverted. Eventually, the gunships would get there. But you had to survive you know, for a long time sure. Uh, sure. with just which what is, you were carrying. Which is crazy to think of the the – you know, the, just just the equipment alone, the twenty round magazines um, is you know the you know imagine the significance of just going to thirty round magazines. I mean, the our ability to carry thirty round magazines alone, I think, is is probably a a force multiplier compared to having oh. to carry 50, 20 round magazines. Yeah, I mean, just just having a, an extra ten rounds that, that you can yeah. put out there before you you have to you know change magazines. I mean, that's that's tremendous in terms of the amount of firepower that that you can put out. Uh, we when we got started getting those in and uh, toward the end of '69, uh, one of the problems we had was you know thirty round magazines heavier than a twenty round. Yep. And, and the car 15 was designed for 20. So you jump out of the helicopter, hit the ground, your magazine falls out. 
because yep. the latch, you know, the spring wasn't strong enough to hold them in there at first. So uh, that's interesting too. So yeah, that's that, and I tell you, <laughs> you, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe, uh, you know, the as I'm sure if you've talked to um, folks who've been to Iraq and Afghanistan. So um, you know, when you when you're doing these. Uh, what you, if you want to call them tier one raids, if you will, um, we're not, you know, we are not loaded down. Um, I mean, these, uh, I've, I've done, you know, 400 missions between Afghanistan and Iraq and over a decade that I was deploying over there. And these, these are missions that lasted. I mean, you, we were off the base for six hours, you know, I mean, it was, obviously as the more you do, the, the better you become and the, the more efficient the supporting units become and then the quicker they go and, and these kind of things. But, but the spending days, you know, in a recon team is obviously such as in stark contrast to, to what, you know, a lot of the best units can, can do today. It's just, it's, we, we have always as a community kind of marveled at, at what you folks have been able to, were able to do with with so little in comparison to ISR uh, assets and lasers and night vision and uh, ballistic protection and all these things that are that are just force multipliers now. Yeah, I mean we we didn't wear um, helmets, we didn't wear flak jackets, we had no ballistic protection. Yep. It, it was too heavy, too hot, and you know my my load bearing equipment typically was. 35 to 40 pounds and then you know a 75 pound plus rucksack uh, that was mostly you know ammunition uh, explosives whatever needed uh, and then you know you'd plan on one meal a day you know, yep. while you were out there you had to carry several quarts of water uh, yep. so yeah i mean the, the weight was just unreal um i wanted to ask uh, obviously today with the wars today there's been uh, advancements in uh, bleeding control and how quickly they can get casualties to a hospital or to a surgical team. Um, in those days, uh, did guys have tourniquets or did they just have sort of makeshift tourniquets? We we had tourniquets in, in the, the sense of the triangular bandages is typically what we used. Um I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's if, if you see people from the older older times with their Rambo rag around their head, the cravats, um, the cravat, yeah, and, and <laughs> so we we use those to make uh, tourniquets out of. Um, and we you know we carried the Americans on the team carried um, uh, medical kits, so we had some things like we had morphine that we mostly. Uh, used when we take prisoners um, but but we had you know various types of meds with us um, we all carried um, a can of ringer solution it, it was packaged in a little metal can that we would tape onto our uh, load bearing gear so every team member you know had one of those I would make my team practice uh, you know putting an IV in they did not like that they were not happy, but I said, look, <laughs> I want you to learn how to do it when nobody's shooting at you. I want to know that if I'm hit and I need it, you can put it in and you should want to make sure that I can put it into you. So we would yeah. practice, 
so we so we did have the blood expander that would uh, help out a little bit, uh, but we didn't have the clotting agents and some of the other things that that are out there now. We didn't have the specialized tourniquets, but bleeding out was a was a real problem. Yeah. And how about the um, the mountain yards? Uh, did they have any type of medical training as well? Just what we gave them. Okay. Uh, and you know we had we had Vietnamese teams, we had the mountain yard teams, we had um, the Hmong, the Chinese teams. So we had several different uh, nationalities of teams. And in our in our compounds, we had to keep them separated uh, because they'd shoot each other or get in right. fights. They had to they had to eat in the mess hall at different times, so you had to do a lot to keep them in separate groups and keep the teams uh, separated. But uh, it, the only training you know, they had had was you know what they got uh, from us. But you know, I mean, these guys had been doing this for a long time. I mean, it was amazing how much scar tissue they had. They'd been hit so many times um, and kept going out there. It was just amazing. But they knew the jungle. I mean, right. they knew how to move. They knew what to listen for. They knew what to smell for. So, I, I mean, they were good when you went out there with them. Yeah, just reading about SOG, you know, I've read several books over the years um, from different um, SOG, SOG men. And some of the things were really surprising about the jungle and things like being able to smell uh, from far away and you know just things like that that you wouldn't really think about or, or think is possible I, I I think I even read something where at, at maybe at a, a point in time they were experimenting with these pills where you would take them and not have to sh take a shit for a few days um, uh, so that you know the, the enemy wouldn't be able to smell anything like that um, j just a, a lot of things that you really wouldn't think about uh, that, that went on, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could <laughs> you could go on a five day mission and and not go the whole time. Um, you, plus, you're, you're not. But you can, a lot and You're burning a lot of. You're burning a lot too. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it was just like driving a cork in you. Uh, but you, I mean, it's it's not that it was something special. I mean, you go to the pharmacy today and across the counter, uh, you know, you can you can buy the same medication that that we were taking then and right. uh it'll it'll stop you up so <laughs> um but you know it's a it can literally be a pain when you finally stop taking it so you can go but right. uh yeah but smells are, are are very important now i was lucky i guess i i had you know kind of spidey senses um i mean i had night vision like an owl uh, I could smell, I I could hear, um, so I mean I could smell bad guys, you know, because they they ate things different than us. So some of the sausage, some of the uh, food that they ate, you know, had a particular odor to it, yeah. you know, that someone that wasn't used to it could could smell right away. I mean it it would stand out. You'd get a little whiff of it. Uh, with a breeze, and you would know they're up in front of you there someplace. So, which, which um, is which is interesting because it's exactly the same. It's it's funny how kind of history repeats itself because those things are those senses are exactly the same. If you now 
if you if you put yourself in uh you know in afghanistan or iraq and, and you're you're assaulting a, a compound or a, a you know house or a compound in iraq and uh, compound in afghanistan that it's the same thing you know they they have a especially when you're when your emotions are high your stress hormones are just going through the roof and now you're you know you're in this environment where you're experiencing all these things at once and then you smell the individual right like yeah. and then, yeah. and that like that is like such a powerful <laughs> it's crazy how how much the brain remembers that yeah and then yeah that's a special op tool that's something that helps you do your job and you know, you train, you learn how to do that. Um, the more you can train your people and particularly train them, like you were just mentioning, they are under stress. When the stress level goes up, it changes everything. Um, there was um, the first contact I was in. Uh, it was a last light insertion into a bomb crater and the helicopter had to come in really slow, get right over the hole and just could barely sit down in without the rotors hitting uh, the trees on the way by. Mm -hmm. And we're settling down in there. I was just getting ready to, to jump off the skid to the bottom of the bomb crater. And I saw saw a guy at the corner of my eye, you know, raise his AK up and aim at me. So, you know, I put about a half a magazine in him and jumped back onto the edge of the, the chopper. And just as I did, he pulled the trigger I uh, hit the guy next to me, so you know I grabbed him and and pulled him back up in the aircraft with me. But you know when I finished that other half a magazine, you know I had to reload. Yep. Trying to get a magazine out of that pouch, you know I had blood all over my hands. I've got hot hot brass flying yep. all over me, tracers yep. crisscrossing inside the aircraft. I'm trying to get the magazine out. I finally get it out. That then I couldn't get it in the weapon. I mean, yeah. it, it, it just your fine motor skills just fall apart. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, you you, you got to practice and practice doing that. And uh, in fact, when when we got got back in, uh, the team leader looked at me and he said, uh, he said, Lieutenant, you're going to have to learn to change magazines a lot faster than that when people are shooting <laughs> at you, or you're going to die. <laughs> I said, Yeah. Yeah, I believe you. I thought I was going to die. I just couldn't believe how hard it was to get the magazine. And it is, and I tell you, it, you know, from from my experiences too, is um, people have asked me, uh, you know, they they have this vision. Uh, you know, people that haven't been in combat haven't engaged people, you know, one on one, if you will, directly. As far as you know, basically, how many times? How many times do you engage someone? Uh, they, a lot of folks think that you. This is like a one or two shot process. Like you're shooting someone twice and they're yeah. going down, and that is just not reality. And no. my response, my response has always been, you squeeze that trigger until that person's down. That's, that's right. That's the answer, and that's that's what I'm going to tell you. And sometimes that's a lot. Yeah, and I had it, I guess might have been the first night I was up at FOB one. I was in the the lounge that we had there and the the NCO that was sitting next to me, we were chatting back and forth and he said, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a piece of advice, Lieutenant. Said when you shoot somebody, never shoot him once or twice. I mean, if you have to put a half a magazine in, you put a half a magazine. If he's still twitching, you shoot him some more. 
Yes. More people have been killed by dead people than you can yeah. imagine because they're not quite dead yet. And they'll squeeze off around into you because you're not paying attention. You think they're gone. And, and you exactly. And you just don't know what you don't know. And when we, you know, I think back to my pre 9-11 training time when basically you're just doing, you know, hundreds, thousands of uh, room clearance exercises or, uh, you know, CQB type exercise operations. And and you basically you it's all it is. It's it's it's. And then you, after you go to combat, you realize that that's the most stress-free environment on the planet, which is doing training and shooting paper targets. But you enter the room and you 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 uh, you you clear your designated area. You shoot your target twice in the chest and you know like once in the head for for accurate just to just to rehearse accuracy, just to make sure you can do it on the move. You know, so that way the, the lane graders can assess how you're shooting and what do we need to work on on the range and these kind of things. But then you go in the combat environment and you realize that, yeah, that is that is not how the real world is uh, when someone's got an AK-47 pointed at you. Yeah, you you can't you can't take a chance. And you know, if uh, most of the times, who can pull the trigger the, the fastest? You know, yeah, a fraction yeah. of a second it makes the difference about who gets hit. Yeah, so, and, and and I don't and I don't think I told John this story last time, but there was this is you'll like this one, Doctor Thompson. It was uh, in uh, I think 2004. It's kind of the same line of discussion here. 2004, we went to a compound in eastern Afghanistan. This is the when I encountered my first. Uh, my first actual barricaded shooter. So there's a, you know, uh, someone in the room's not coming out. We're yelling at him to come out. We've got the interpreter there, you know, tell him to, you know, come out. We've got you surrounded. You can't, you know, don't just, just, just give up. And basically he told us to, he told us where to go. <laughs> it's, uh, that's the long and short of it. And um, so I was the team leader at the time and I said, okay, well, we're going to go get him. We're getting him right now. Um, and uh, I went up the top of these stairs and entered the room. And, well, I, there were two rooms, and one of them I thought he wasn't in, one of them I thought he was. And what turned out was the one that I thought he wasn't in is where he was. So I entered into that room and, and uh, shined my light in there. It's still, you know, still dark out, middle of the night. Shine the surefire light on him. He's in the corner. You have about a 12 by 12 square room, you know, not just a you know, small room in a compound in Afghanistan and he's he's got the bed flipped up in the corner with an AK-47 pointed right at the doorway and I just about I think my heart stopped for at least a few seconds and then after that it's it's purely it's purely muscle memory it's all everything that, that I had done up to that point on the range and and every training environment that I'd ever done to, to take the weapon off safe and just basically start engaging that guy as he's in, he's, he's trying to shoot me. And, you know, fortunately he didn't hit me. And, but it goes back to that point of, you know, I kept squeezing that trigger until, until he was absolutely 100% gone. Yeah. I'm yeah. not, I'm not sure if this was the case for, for Vietnam, uh, combat in Vietnam, but I know I've, I've heard of stories, uh, Ron, from Iraq and Afghanistan. And I also, I think maybe in, um, uh, maybe in Africa as well, where guys that U.S. forces were engaging were on some kind of drug and 
you know, they would shoot the guy a couple of times and he just wouldn't go down. Uh, I think um, in particular, uh, the uh, the Delta Force guys who were in the Black Hawk Down incident, yeah. uh, some of them had later complained that they were shooting guys and they just weren't going down. I, I think they'd just switched over to a different type of ammunition during that time yeah. period. Yeah. So the, and the other thing is, yeah, so we, so we have the thing with the tier one units now is that we have the ability, we don't carry what's what I'm sure Dr. Thompson's familiar with would be is, is either ball or green tip ammunition. Um, and the ball or green tip ammunition was kind of the, uh, that's, that's like the, you know, the standard five, five, six, uh, two, two, three rounds. But, um, but now say a few years after nine 11, uh, you know, the, the specialized units are, are allowed to carry specialized rounds. Um, and they account for that. They account for, you know, a, a full metal jacket round that, that travels extremely fast, you know, it's 3000 feet per second coming out of that, coming out of that, that rifle barrel to not just simply pass right through the person. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a fairly small hole and that round zip and it'll just go right through them. So how to how do you counter that? Well, you 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 know you you increase the weight of it a little bit, change the tip, uh, you make a you make it an expanding round. These kind of things will, uh, you know, of course, in theory they are supposed to work more effectively, and, and they do. But the same thing applies when you're engaging someone who's another human being who's at adrenaline level and their cortisol levels through the roof. Well, then they're, you know, that, that person as a, as a human is going to want to survive. So it, and it's, it's pretty tough. Humans are not the easiest thing to kill. That's what I can tell you. Yeah. And, you know, we had, we had a similar problem with, um, you know, the Viet Cong in particular, but, you know, North Vietnamese too, um, they would get drugged up before an attack and, um, and you would you could shoot them, and they, you know, you hit them three or four times, and they keep they're still coming forward, and you're thinking what? Um, so yeah, you you got to keep hitting them till they go down. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy environment when you think of, you know, you think of folks that come back from overseas, you know, whether it was early, you know, 60s, early 70s from Vietnam, and and now you know you know post 9/11 after having done. 10 years of combat rotations in, in the, in the Middle East that it, it definitely, it makes you look at the experiences of people much differently. Like it makes me, it makes me now understand how some of those post Vietnam guys, how they were and how they acted that I was around when I first was the few guys that were still there when I was assigned to SEAL Team 2 and the, in the mid nineties. I mean, these, these guys were, they were just different and, and you didn't know how to explain it. You couldn't really put your finger on it, but, but you know, and after you experience it yourself, you can look back and go, okay, I, I, I get it. I kind of, I understand what they're, why it was different. Yeah. I used to, you know, make the comment sometimes about, you know, I, I would see guys there in Southeast Asia get hit three or four times and, and keep coming. And then here in the U S a guy on the street gets shot with a 22 pistol and he falls over and he dies. And I think, wow, 
that's a different, but he's not pumped up. Uh, if he is, I mean, if, if he's on drugs, then it's, it's different, but it's, it's amazing, you know, when someone is really uh, opt up on adrenaline and cortisol and maybe something else in their system um, and they're coming. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and that was, you know, when I was talking to, talking to John about the, your, your behavioral science background and, and my interest too, and you know, how, how all these things affect the, you know, the human body. And especially when you, you talk about veterans, whether it's post Vietnam or, or, you know, now today, modern times is when you get these people that your, your body, your brain is so used to being on this, this stress hormone train is continuously up and down, up and down uh, for months at a time. And then, and then you come home and you're like, you know, Oh, okay. Now, now what am I going to do? And if you you do that for years, I mean, it it has a profound effect on, on the person. Yeah. When I, I guess the first week I was back, um, you know, my father said, why don't we go bird hunting? And, and we used to do that a lot before I went. So so we go to this field back over behind our house, uh, and we're, we'd go through the woods to get there. And when we get to the edge of the field, you know, he walked out in the field to try to, you know, flush the birds up. And he stopped and turned around, and I'm still standing in the tree line. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm not going out there. <laughs> I mean, there's no way I'm walking out in that field, you know, uh, there's no protection out there. So we talked about that for a little while and we said, well, okay, tell you what, let's go back over to the to the old duck pond over on, on the other side of the property and we shoot a duck because it's in the woods. There's a, a old pond there in the woods. So I said, okay, you know, we, we can do that. And I had a, you know, 12-gauge automatic that I was carrying, and when we got to the edge of the duck pond, a duck flew up. So I just instantly hit the duck twice as I was diving for the ground. I'm behind a tree, and and what's left of the duck is on the water. And I, I don't know if the wind blew his feathers a little bit or if he actually moved. I shot him two more times, and <laughs> you know my my father and my. My uh, cousin who was with us, they're both standing there, their mouths are open and they're and looking at me. And finally, my father said, what did you do? I said, he was still moving. And I think, it's I a think duck. Were, I, 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 it's a duck. I, said, I think they were me, glad they weren't ducks, Dr. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, I and I, I actually, I stopped hunting. Uh, you know, I, I just, you know, once I go into that mode, you know, I'm going to take it out. Yeah, and, that, and it's it's interesting. That's the, a lot of the, some of the perceptions too. Is folks will uh, they'll ask me if I to go hunting or do any these things, and I my all I say is not anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, no, I don't do any of that stuff. It just uh, it uh, you know I retired three years ago, and that's that was it. I mean, it was you know it's it's you 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 amass these these experiences and these, you know, of course, these mental images, I mean, the uh, people think that you can just, oh, I'm just going to forget all that stuff that I did for a decade and just go do something else. 
and you know the reality of it is is you 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 have to you have to turn your mind on to something else to become immersed in something else in order to keep it from reverting back to you know to, you know to periods that were in experiences that were certainly by anyone's definition extremely traumatic yeah i mean it doesn't take much to trigger that i mean not I'm not talking about where you you do something crazy, but the right. the fun right. the, the fun's not there now, you know. Yeah, yeah right. Um, um, so when you um when you took over your your team and saw um, Mike Stahl, who was the team leader right before you, uh, he was wounded and then medevaced out and uh, eventually made his way back over to the States. You, you didn't see him in transit or anything like that, right? Like by the time you got there? No, I was, because I was on, on the, the other team when I, when I first got there, they assigned me to the other team. And he was, um, I was on the other team when he got wounded. And, it, and at that time, they shut down FOB1 uh, and uh, RT Michigan, was moved down to FOB4 at um, at Denang, and I was sent down there. So I I really didn't have anything to do with this team until I got down there, and he was he was already gone from it. Right um, now, uh, Eldon Bargewell uh, was still on the team, and I forgot who the other guy was at, at first. Um, but I took over the team, and I. I don't know if that name's ringing a bell for did, you, but did that Barge, be General Bargewell? <laughs> General Bargewell, yeah. No <laughs> General kidding. General Bargewell uh, was a specialist fourth class, and my assistant team leader. Uh, no when kidding. I when I took over when I took over Michigan, he was he became my assistant team leader. Uh, so he and I ran teams, ran missions with SOG. Uh, became good friends uh, until a little later on, where it, they had another team that came open, and you know, I I told my boss, I said, you know, <laughs> Bargewell can run the team. I mean, it, it, the man's fantastic. Right. So, yeah, like I said, small small world. Right. Yeah. So you know, he and I kept bumping into each other, you know, through our uh, throughout our careers, and. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, he and I were, we had been talking. I don't know, just a, a few weeks before uh, he had the the accident. But uh, yeah, I mean, he was he was unreal. I mean, he he, he was one of the coolest uh, guys I've ever been in combat with. In terms of when people were shooting at you, uh, I mean, he was just fantastic. So when you um when they closed that that forward operating base and then you went you said back to FOB four, right? Was that at that point no longer considered um, CCN or was that still under that umbrella? Uh, it, it really became CCN. I mean, they they kind of stopped talking about it as 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 four and and everybody just called it CCN. Um, you know, but we. So some of the teams went there. Some went to the other two sites that we had, um, and I ran, you know, ran teams out of there um, all through '69. I think I got, <clears throat> I think I got down there in January 
69 and stayed there the rest of the of the year running team so and Bargewell and I you know ran together for a few months and then um, I got put on another team for a while and then um, ended up with the last team that I was with that uh, really enjoyed working with them they were good too what uh how long were your when you when you when you would do your if you had to and I, it might be tough to probably easier for me to say what a typical operation was but if you had to consider the typical uh kind of recon team operation back then what was the what was that cycle like how long how long from start to finish would you would you typically typically be dealing with actually being on the mission yeah yeah um, we usually plan, I mean, depending on what we were going for, but usually uh, you would plan for five days, sometimes seven. Um, it, it just depended because it, if you were going out looking, you know, for North Vietnamese regiment, I mean, you yep. might find them on the second day. Yep. And once you found them and made contact with them, you know, yep. there's six or seven of you and a few thousand of them. Uh, you know, you didn't stay much longer after that. You had yep. to, you had to evacuate. But you no, know, but it might take you five or six days sometimes to find them. Yep. Or if you were going in to uh, uh, sabotage um, an ammunition dump and you put bad ammunition in it. Yep. Uh, you know, it, it just depends. Uh, you're going after a POW camp or going to. Sometimes you'd go after a down pilot, but so it, it just kind of depends on what the mission was as to how long you would be out there and i mean it was you know going on a sog mission with it it was it was an ordeal and yep. it wasn't you know let's uh put you on a, a helicopter and we'll fly you out drop you off i mean you know you went through a, a planning phase and all the briefing um phases but I mean, you would have, we had an airborne battlefield command and control center uh, that was flying over Laos or North Vietnam, wherever we were going. That mm -hmm. thing would be up there all the time. So we could always make communication with somebody. Um, you'd have a forward air controller that would go out first. The, the slicks that the team would be on would go out. We would use, we'd had gunship es escorts going yep. out with us, usually, you know, four gunships, you know, going out there with us. We would have a, a trail ship um, that would be trailing behind in case one of ours went down. He could come yep. in and load us out. We'd have a meta back, back there. Um, we'd usually have some A1E Sky Raiders in orbit at uh, a rendezvous point waiting to be called in if we needed them. Anytime we went north, if you went to North Vietnam, um, or up in that area close to it, you had to have uh, the F-4 Phantoms um, yep. had to also be on orbit and ready to come in to give you uh, air cover as well as, you know, uh, ground support. So, I mean, it, there may be, you know, 15, 20 aircraft involved with just putting in that six-man team. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, it's, it's it's very similar to the, you know, the stuff today. I mean, any of the, now the, now the, the you know, the, the, the obviously the tier one folks, we we had, 
you know, a plethora of assets, obviously. And, um, and you're talking about ISR aircraft and um, AC-130s for us, same thing. You know, a lot, a lot of these things, we consider them um, minimum requirements, uh, you know, fixed wing fixed wing cast that's stacked up for, you know, pre-infill and post-exfill. Um, sometimes rotary, rotary wings, you know, sometimes we had the, the 64s, the Apaches. Um, but we, I don't, I don't think I've ever done anything where we didn't have, uh, you know, all of the, basically all of those things, ISR covers, fixed wing, potentially rotary wing casts, uh, Kazovac considerations. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, just it, they are such a complex thing and it's interesting with the way things are today, especially with the units have, as they have, uh, developed and grown specifically the folks like the special operations aviation regiment the uh you know the army unit in uh, fort campbell i mean those right. you know th- those guys the ability to rapidly deploy blackhawks little birds 47s i mean all these airframes to meet the demands and it's it's just a it's been remarkable for me to see all these things and but but it's it's also remarkable to think of all these things that are that folks like you essentially you know, you wrote the SOPs for these things back in the back in the '60s, and and that institutional knowledge, you know, carried forward. And you know, little maybe not all of it was was given to guys like me, but at least some of the little the little things that made the most sense on how to do these operations, so that that way, you know, post 9/11, that it wasn't a um, a big disaster for us as we ramped up for operations. Yeah, I think you know we we learned a lot. Um, sometimes we were slow learners, <laughs> but um, you know, it, at that time the North Vietnamese were probably you could easily argue that they were probably the number four toughest army in the world at that time, and would have been much more so had they had the technology and the assets that we did. But they, you know, they just didn't have an air force like we had. They didn't have the technology that we had, uh, and they were still, you know, ferocious. And they learned fast. So we, we started, um, particularly the second half of '69, going into '70. We'd put teams out and never see them again. Right. I mean, because they were, they they figured out how we operated. Um, I mean, I I went into a bomb crater. Uh, that we had had made and i mean they knew we were coming and they were they already had the ambush set up around the crater when we got there and you know so you can't go out and drop one daisy cutter on a ridge line and not think that they're going to say hmm why did they do that i bet we're going to see some helicopters come into that that big bomb crater there why did they just drop one out here so we had to and start changing things up, be smarter. Um, and, so, and we would do false insertions sometimes. Yep. You got to the point where, you know, you land three times. They don't know which one you got off on. Yeah, we'd do the same thing. So one of the one of the main, I think, differences between the Vietnam War and the wars that Ron and his teammates fought in was um, the – intelligence right so like in iraq in the early days um they didn't have much actionable intelligence 
So people were kind of sitting around. I mean, they were going after like Saddam's regime and stuff like that, but they didn't have uh, the same intelligence. And then once they started building these cell phone towers, uh, that's when it sort of changed the game. And a lot of these, uh, the tier one teams that were rotating through there were able to really up their pace and, and go after people. Um, and then obviously, as Ron has alluded to, with all the, the increases in technology and, and surveillance, uh, that allows them to build target packages and all that kind of thing. But in Vietnam, uh, North Vietnam was such a closed off space. And then just having the, the jungle there, um, I guess you couldn't just fly over and see exactly what was happening, right? And, and so that was <laughs> one of the purposes of, of SOG. And that's yeah. um, that's what made yeah. it so dangerous because it's like they're sending small teams in just to, in some instances just to see what's going on back there. Uh, and that was obviously incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And, you know, you always – you know, encountered such a large force when you got in there. Um, but it, we, um, yeah, it with the jungle, it's you j- you can't see what's under that canopy, um, except places where the road comes out in a valley or or by a stream or something. But um, the only way you can find out what's in there is somebody's got to get on the ground and walk underneath there or, or at that time. I mean, now we we have better technology that you know we can look down in there with. But uh, back at that time, somebody had to go out there, and uh, you know it it could um, be an ugly afternoon for you. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's in, you know I tell you, you know, Dr. Thompson, if you think of the um, you think of the assets, and you can picture me like. You know, so here we are. Here I was, a, a, a troop master chief in, uh, uh, you know, closing in on the getting ready to assault the target. And I've got the, uh, you know, I carried two radios on me. I had one radio to talk to the guys on the assault net, and I had another radio on the on the command net to talk to the uh, talk to the aircraft the assets. And uh, and we'd literally be sneaking up to this thing, and you got, you know, somebody speaking to you in one ear uh, from the aircraft. It's like, hey, I got. I got four guys. They just came out the. They just came out the door on the south side of the compound. Uh, okay, they're walking over to the wall. I mean, it's it's literally just play by play in your head. Um, and uh, I mean, you, you know, to imagine doing things without that, or to be in the jungle environment and just you know have really have no clue as to as to who or how many are, are in front of you is 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 just a. Uh, it, it's it would be a shock to most. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean the the radio was the radio was a big deal. You know, we carried we carried the one the one big radio with us, uh, and then each American had a small um, a URT ten uh, emergency survival radio that transmitted on the guard frequency, so yeah. you could. You know, you could talk to an aircraft if he was anywhere the, in the area. That was the, I guess that that's the first uh, 112, the uh, the the rescue, the PRC 112, yeah. the rescue. Yeah. Um, so I mean, but the other radio is the PRC 25 and then 77. Yep. But you know, we didn't you didn't talk. I mean, I mean, we didn't talk when we were on the ground. Um, everything had to be encoded manually encoded uh, and transmitted in three letter you know code groups at certain times of the day um, until you made contact you couldn't just talk on the radio 
Um, yeah, I guess that's you're, you're talking. I mean, this is back when, because I remember going through the communication school in uh, uh, special operations communication school, and like, and I think it was ninety five or ninety six, and and they were still teaching even in ninety five and ninety six the uh, the DMDG and the uh, the burst traffic stuff over yep. uh, over HF. Um, so yeah, the the you know being able to do those things is comparison to just you know you're now you're just talking on uh, versus a, a UHF you know in Afghanistan I could call the aircraft on UHF secure and just ask them just to just to pass something over SAT for me. Yeah, and I you know the only way I could talk to um, you know an Air Force aircraft. Would be on that survival radio. I could talk to, you know, the the gunships that came in, you know. So we had FM communication with them, but I I couldn't talk directly to the aircraft to an F four, you know, unless I used that radio, which I right. I did a few times because I I really needed them to put it in a particular place. But um, now we in in '69. They they came out with something called the the KY thirty eight, which was a second piece of communication gear, encrypted communication yeah, I was gear. Say it's the, the encryptor, yeah. Yeah, that was it was bigger yep. than the PRC seventy seven, and you had to connect them together yeah, to make with, them work. With, yeah, that's right. With the cable, yeah, I've, yeah, I've yeah. Seen that one. So now you now you're fifty four pounds yep. for a radio. Double plus, batteries, plus all the batteries that burn <laughs> it burns through. Yeah, Holy crazy. cow! And uh, you know, it's just it was brutal. But I mean, you could talk. Uh, you had to, you know, key the code in every day. But you could, you could, you know, just transmit the clear. But I also had an incident where, you know, about twenty one hundred, I got a call from um, on on the encrypted radio call came in from a female North Vietnamese person uh, who read our team's obituary to us over the radio in English with funeral music in the background read off all of our names that we'd been killed in action that day just just in the clear over the radio in the clear over the radio and you know we're Sitting there, uh, I'm I'm listening to it. I'm I'm in shock. I mean, how did she get our names? How in the world could she be on this frequency and transmitting, you know, through this encrypted radio? I mean, you had to have a radio. You had to have the code sheet. You had to have the gun. You had to know what frequency and everything we were going to be on. And there she is, and she's talking to us, or you know, talking to me, and um, and then you know. Things went downhill from there, so we didn't. I mean, we were in contact, you know, shortly after that, and we got out about five o'clock the next afternoon. But, um, you know, I, I kind of lost faith in the encrypted radio, lugging lugging that thing around, and then, you know, the bad guys are talking to me on it. So. Yeah, that's you know, in uh, you know, one of the things that. You know, one of the things that we would do is we would take, uh, uh, you know, interpreters with us with with the ability to listen to communications um, of the folks we were going after on the ground. I mean, so literally we'd be we'd be on the on the helicopters and 
and I'd have the uh, interpreter calling me on the on the secure radio, telling me what the guys are talking about on the ground as we're getting ready to land. Um, wow. That's yeah, cool. it's, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, see, I got to be careful, John, because Dr. Thompson is going to be like, he's going to he's he's going to think I'm a. Uh, uh, you know, I'm one of the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, like what I say about the young guys now, the, the, the young, the young punks, they don't know how hard it is. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'm telling you, I, there's no doubt in my mind that the bullets that are being fired at the special ops guys today hit just as hard as the ones that were coming at me. You know, I, and nothing, you know, but respect for you. You yeah, guys. but I but I tell you, you know, the ability to do that stuff is, um, you know, to have that like real time information. I mean, I've I've literally been in the position where this interpreter is like trying to like grab a hold of me inside the forty seven, as we're on like we're on like you know we're on like one minute you know we're we're landing and uh, you know there's no stopping it now and uh, and and this interpreter's yelling in my ear and he's like they say they know we're coming and I'm like. <laughs> And I'm just like, okay, I there's nothing I can do right now, you know. Like, um, and and then all you can do is just prepare, and it's, which yeah. is, yeah. which is which is get off the birds, and you revert back to the to the tactics that are proven. You you revert back to the the land warfare, the bounding movements, you know, working as a team and um, keeping as much as many guns up online as you can, and and th- that's that's really all you can do in that situation. Yeah, I mean. W- the first couple of missions that I, that I went on, it was, you know, you got on the aircraft and you flew out there and you really didn't know what was happening, you know, on the LZ and on the ground yep. until you got there. And then uh, once I became a team leader, I, I asked the crew chief, I said, can I use that headset that's hanging up here? Yeah, and and I grabbed the headset and I put it on and I thought, wow, <laughs> yes, I I can hear the forward air controller. I mean, he, you know right. what he's what's going on out there. I hear the other aircraft talk. I mean, I now I know, you yeah. know what's going on, and if it's a hot LZ, I know where the bad guys are on, and I know if that's where we had planned to get off and run into. Yep. So I can at least start with the guys on my aircraft saying, hey, this is what we're going to do when we hit the ground. We're going yep. a different direction. Uh, it, and I, I'm telling you, and, and and I use this in uh, stress classes I do all the time. That lowered my stress so much more. Even if it was, I knew yes. it was going to be bad. Yep. I knew about it. Yep. At least I knew about it, and I could start thinking about it before I got on the ground. So yes. I can make decisions now. Uh, you know, when I'm not getting shot at, and it's a lot easier to make better ones before the bullets start flying. Um, so man, I I, it, I use the headset every time after that. It's interesting. So yes, we do exactly the same thing. I mean, so now we get on the aircraft and we have the headsets on, but um, you know, we walk up. I'd walk into the forty-seven or sit in the in in the Hawk or even in the Little Birds, and um, I'd grab one of the you know the ICS connector that's that's there for the uh, the assault team leader, and plug into that, and then I I'd, I'd you know let the pilot know that I'm on the net, and then I've got access to uh, FM UHF SAT um, you know command and control. I mean I, I can listen to all of it right there. Um, in in distress level things that you're speaking of. Uh, what I noticed um, after having done uh, probably, you know, 100, 200 uh, targets was that 
the lower that my stress level was, that it, it, it was a trickle-down effect on yes. the rest of the guys. So exactly. If I got off of that bird and I was running around like a crazy person, the whole thing is going to be a disaster. Um, and, but if I got off the, if I got on the radio and I was the, I was the, I was calm on the radio, um, told the guys what I wanted them to do, talk to the aircraft, then it was, it, things went extremely well. I mean, uh, to a point where you could kind of stand back and then, and then watch the teams move and maneuver like they're supposed to. Um, and, and, and like you're saying that, that communication just, it just, it sets that, that tone, that standard. Um, when you're getting it, if as long, as long as somebody gets on the ground and somebody has that information, um, it's 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 exponential. Yep. And what, makes all um, the difference. What? So some of the the issues uh, with uh, in, in certain uh, situations where they were, you know, that you said they contacted you over the radio, right? Or other situations um, where they may have known where a team was inserting into and, and there wasn't a, a bomb drop like right before that. Um, in some of the, the books written by Sogman over the years, uh, and I think it was, this was mostly later on, like uh, late 60s uh, towards 70, um, were there issues with um, maybe South Vietnamese uh, having been infiltrated by the Viet Cong or or someone from the, or having some sort of loyalty to the North Vietnamese, and that was what was giving up locations and and radio signals and stuff like that. There were a lot of things like that going on. Um, it, just to give you an example, like at CCN, I mean that was a pretty good sized camp. It was top secret, you know. But I mean we had a. We had a Vietnamese staff, so to speak, you know, cleaning ladies, you know, laundry, cooks. I mean, we had all, all kind of civilians, Vietnamese civilians, who came into the compound every day to do all of these jobs that went on there. And, you know, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to look down toward the recon area was all – Constantine it off and you know they couldn't necessarily get inside there but you could see uh, and you could see when teams were getting ready you could see teams rehearsing you could watch the teams go out to the helipad and load up you knew they were flying out to a launch site I mean there was all kind of information that they could get and I'm sure they did get and then told other people outside the compound who relayed the information um, and like I say, by, as we were going toward the end of 69, we were losing teams and, you know, they we were getting hit on the LZ or teams going out and never being hit, heard from again. People talking to you on the radio like they were doing me and, and that information, you know, a lot of it had to come from inside. Right. So and, and we also had some teams where there were, you know, Vietnamese teams. The, the indigenous people were, were Vietnamese on the team with their Americans, uh, and some of them were really North Vietnamese. And once they got out in the field uh, with either attack, you know, their Americans, you know, sort of like insider uh, shooting is today, except they would be out in the jungle when they would do it, uh, and nobody would know about it. Right. Uh, so there are a lot of things going on like that. 
I mean, they they casually rate in SOG. I mean, you you hear it all the time. It, it's over a hundred percent. If you were if you were running operations in SOG, uh, everybody was going to be wounded or killed, uh, and maybe both, while you were there. I mean, you, you knew. I mean, I almost every time I went out, I would get hit at least with some shrapnel. Not not big enough that you know I I went in and you know, I had to go to the hospital with, but the medics would pull it out. You know, and you just move on. You don't report it. You just keep going. But you're going to get hit. And, you know, rucksack shot off of you. I mean, just unreal. But, you know, I I lost, uh, you know, a lot of friends during that 12 months. You know, the, the casualty, you know, the, that's the one thing that's in stark contrast to, um, you know, things that have been going on since even in the 19 years since 2001 is the casualty rate you know when you if you're for those who haven't been to uh washington dc and actually walked down the, the vietnam the wall um you know that is the instantaneous perspective of of the of the cost difference um you know the 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 casualty rate um you know even if even when just looking at at the uh, SF community, um, you think about the, the number of folks that, well, they're, they're either killed in action or they're, they're still missing today, um, you know, which is, it's just, for a lot of us um, in 2020, that's, that's, that's tough to come to grips with because you're, you're, you sit here and you think about it. Well, what do you, what do you mean they're, what do you mean they're just gone? What do you mean they're, they're just missing an action. They're just never to be heard from again. Right. Um, but then when you think about the terrain, um, the ability of, you know, the, you know, the, the cover, the, the, the inability for ISR to be able to see through the canopy to, to, to even be able to determine where the heck these people are going to, much less if they're going inside of a mountain or underground. Um, it's, it's, it's just, a, was, it just must have been a remarkable situation for all those uh, folks that were deployed over there, of course. So with, with uh, these teams losing uh, so many people, I just cannot imagine uh, what that would be like. And uh, if you can explain some of that, uh, Dr. Thompson, you know, entire teams going missing. So then what happens after that? They have to replace those guys, right? So how does that work? You have to replace them, but I mean, you've, you've got to find some other people who are willing to volunteer for SOG. Um, you know, in, in our case, and and then, you know, they have to be trained up and you you have to go out and hire more. I mean, you know, the indigenous people are mercenaries, so you have to go out and hire some more mercenaries to bring in to be on the teams um, and and then get them, you know, trained up. So that that takes a while. It takes a while to get a like if you lose a team leader like. You know, with with your friend you know, Mike, if you lose him, um, I mean, it takes a while to find another team leader who can come in and and take over. Then he's got to learn the team. So, but it just just at CNN or CC and at, at my the guys that I associated with the other Americans, and and there were more there than this, but I lost. 34 friends, wow. people that I considered 
friends and there were other people there that I knew, but I lost 34, you know, during that time, uh, they were just friends of mine. And, and that didn't count what w- the, was being lost out of the rest of the camp there. Plus there were two other camps. And it, I mean, the, like I said, the casualty rate was just unreal. Every time you went out, uh, you pretty much assume this is probably it. I mean, the, the chances of coming back are, you know, very slim. Uh, you know, you go do your thing. And, um, you know, so we lost a lot. Yeah, it's tough. And um, so for you, Ron, I, like, obviously, uh, you had mentioned earlier the the downing of the aircraft, uh, Extortion 17, um, but obviously that was a mass casualty event. Um, yeah, yeah. So in situations like that, I mean, I don't know if you can even speak about it, but, um, you know, you, you lose a whole bunch of guys at one time. Does another team have to immediately rotate in to fill that, that gap? Well, so, yeah, it's like Dr. Thompson was saying. So you're, you're basically, you're now, you're now stuck in that, in that kind of pivotal place of, uh, of it takes so long to create one of these guys. Um, and, and you don't really, you know, people don't, you know, a lot of think folks, I'm sure there are a lot of people who appreciate it, but there's a lot of people that don't appreciate how long it takes. Um, the years that, you know, I, I enlisted at, at age uh, 17 and I wasn't at the tier. I didn't go through selection training at tier one unit until I was 28. Um, you know, so you think about that, um, you know, not only in the in the context of how long it takes, you think about that in the context of between Dr. Thompson and I, like my, you know, my ability to manage stress and to um, be in the, in the direct combat environment in my thirties, basically through the entirety of my thirties, that's a big difference than, than him being, uh, you know, 20, 19, 20, 21 years old. Um, I mean, that is, you know, that's, uh, you know, I can't imagine having been in those environments at that age because it was, uh, it's, it's just, for me, it's kind of crazy to think about, especially when you think of, uh, these young guys that are out there, the conventional military folks, you know, I'd see these guys, um, you know, these convoys leaving the base in Iraq, uh, uh, that were bringing in, you know, essentially supplies. They're bringing in food for us on the base. And, uh, and you got this, you know, this 18, 19 year old guy in the, this army soldier in the turret of this, this Humvee that's getting ready to drive from, you know, uh, some base in, 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 in Western Iraq, uh, back to, uh, uh, you know, back to Baghdad type of thing. And you're just, you're just like, man, this guy is just like, I mean, his eyes are just comp- as wide as they could possibly be. And right. here I was, I was, this is 2005. I was, I was 35 years old. Um, so, but yeah, after the accident, um, it's tough cause you, you, you get the, the entire strike force is gone in an instant and not only the strike force, but the, you know, an, an, an airframe and the entire air crew that was on right. it too. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a big lag there, you know, there's a, the strike force is effectively dead in the water. I mean, you can't, um, the first thing that you, you, you have to do is, is, uh, uh, you know, take care of the, is, you know, for us as leadership positions is take care of the people that, that were lost, uh, take care of the families, um, Again, like Dr. Thompson was saying, account for the equipment. You know, you got to do all these things 
um, kind of first, uh, unless there's a pressing need to get the force back up and running, you know, as, as soon as possible. So in that context, yeah, we, uh, you know, it, it takes some time to, uh, to grow and to, and to cut, you know, separate some teams from other locations to bring them in. But those are typically brought in from like in theater or, or people backstage side that are already qualified that are just, uh, you know, maybe deploying when they, when they shouldn't be, or they're just, we're shifting them around uh, in theater itself. Yeah. I, and I think if I could just tag onto that, what, there's a word that, that Ron keeps using that I don't, I don't know that people appreciate enough, and 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 that's the word team. I mean, when you start working together as as a special ops team and working together and going out there, uh, it, there's a, a bonding, there's a a form of communication and everything that that happens. That you know, it takes a long time to create another team like that. That, that can function that way, that understand each other that well and know all the immediate action drills and read each other's minds to some degree and, and know what's going on. I mean, you just, you can't replace that overnight. Yeah. And John, you know, one of the, one of the other interesting things is um, when I look at like, uh, you know, in, in all of my, you know, time and, you know, in Afghanistan, Iraq is, is spent on night vision. You know I mean? I don't, I never did one nighttime operation where I didn't have night vision on. Right. Uh, so, you know, yeah. So I, I, I have a, a, I have a lot of hours of looking at the world through a green lens, if you will. <laughs> so, right. Uh, the nighttime world looks, looks green. <laughs> and, uh, so, but you, you know, when I, when you're walking behind people or with guys in a patrol, I could look at the guy just like Dr. Thompson saying, I could look, you know, even if the guy was 80 yards, hundred yards away from me and I'm looking at him under night vision, I can tell who it is by way the guy's walking right. or by way, the, by way the guy's standing. Um, and you know, like those, that, that intimate knowledge of the, of the, the inner workings of the, the team or the assault troop is just, I mean, it's just, you just, you don't, first of all, you don't appreciate it till you don't have it. Um, and second of all, you know, trying to communicate uh, how important that is to the junior guys is kind of difficult because they're just not there yet. Um, but I can look at pictures of guys now that I've got on the wall. And I mean, literally, I can just, you know, it kind of makes me laugh because I can remember, you know, just watching this individual walk for hours and hours in front of me. Yeah. So, Dr. Thompson, um, obviously, you were a young man uh, when you were running SOG. Is that something that was unique to the time period that you were there uh, due to the amount of casualties that were taken in the previous years leading up to that point? That was that was part of it that we had we had so many casualties. But, you know, you had to get people to volunteer. I mean, it, you didn't get assigned to SOG. Uh, you had you had to sign that statement. I volunteer to go anywhere, do anything, um, and then sign the the non disclosure. And you had to do all this before you were told what it was you had to go do. And you know the the word would get out that you know the casualty rate was so don't go there. You know 
if, if you want to have a chance of surviving Vietnam, don't go to SOG. And, um, and what's crazy so, about that is you're, you're probably hearing that from other special forces guys, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had a, uh, a friend who had gotten there a couple of months before that I had gone. We went through the qualification course together, you know, so we knew each other, you know, very well. And, and he just said, when you go over today to, to in process, the last thing they're going to do is to take you into Colonel Jones or whatever his name was office. He's going to take you in there and he's going to try to get you to join SOG. Don't do it. <laughs> whatever you do, don't do it. And, you know, so when I came out of there, it was evening. I came out. So I went over to the little bar where we had agreed to meet. And as I came walking in, you know, he looked at me and he said, you did it. <laughs> I can tell by looking at you, you did it. And then he said, you are a dead man walking. That's yeah. crazy. And I thought, holy cow. So um, young people, it, their prefrontal cortex is not developed quite to the level <laughs> of, of somebody in their 30s. Right. And, right. and one of the, the things that that causes is you're you're much more likely to take risks. Uh, and take the kinds of risks that, you know, a 30-year-old won't take. Um, so it's easier to get the younger people to sign up for something like that. They think it's going to be cool and they're bulletproof and all this kind of stuff. You know, time you're in your 30s, you know you're not bulletproof. So, right. Um, and, you know, but, and then, you know, the more experienced guys were team leaders and team leaders are, are getting killed, you know, on a regular basis because they're – doing what team leaders do when the contact starts and you know they're more likely to get hit and mm -hmm. did you run a lot of your missions in cambodia uh, i only went down there a few times most of mine were in cambodia north vietnam okay and now you know when we were not running the the sog missions we did we did things in Vietnam, but it was mostly training for the missions that we were about to go do. So we had uh, we had some areas where you know the the bad guys were there, so we could go out and train and practice and have some live fire shoot back targets, you know, to keep us honest. Um, so we we did some things. We had to man man the uh, combat outpost up on the mountain right that stuck right up outside our compound. So you'd have a firefight up there almost every night with them trying to come up there and get you. So we, we had a lot of things going on, but those were not really considered missions from a SOG perspective. So um, it, it kept you uh, kept you busy. When you, uh, Dr. Thompson, when you talk about the, the you're doing uh, basically capture, you know, capture op op operations back in the um, late 60s, uh, uh, so now, obviously, you're you're. Can you talk about the since since it's we're we're at least now much later into the future, being 2020. Um, can you talk about uh, the 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 infill methods for doing uh, uh, some a capture mission? You know the uh, how do you detain the people? How do you get them out? How do you get them to the exfil platform? Um, you know, with without uh, you know coming under fire or or basically killing the, uh, you know, killing the detainee that you're trying to get out of there. 
Well, let, let me let me be transparent up front. I don't know if you know Jocko Willick or not. I do. Uh, I do know who he is. Yep. Yeah. He he gives me a hard time because um, I, I had some difficulty um, getting prisoners out alive. I could get them. It's just sometimes they. It's tough. Um, <laughs> sometimes they, uh, they died in the process. Um, yeah. No. I. Yeah. I, I understand. So. <laughs> yeah. But okay. So w- with with that as background, yeah. I mean, if uh, sometimes the mission was to go just go get a guy out of this particular unit that was going to be in a certain place. So we would we would still go in, uh, you know, with with the helicopter insertion. Uh, go in, we would, you know, go a pretty good distance to get away from where we were inserted um, and set up next to to a trail. We would we might watch the trail for a day or two uh, for people going up and down the trail to make sure it was going to be, you know, a small enough group that we could handle. Uh, And then we might set up an ambush that had a dead space right in the middle of it. You know, so everything was a kill zone except for where this one person was going to be. Uh, detonate the ambush, you know, and and we'd put demolition, put C4 there to stun the guy. Yep. So and then yep. you know, I'd have the team to jump out. I I call the first guy out onto the trail the thumper. Yep. Uh, he was the guy that's going to you know knock the crap out of the guy. Um, put him down. I would usually have the morphine threat. I'd hit yep. him in the in the thigh, uh, and within a couple of minutes, you know, oh, yeah. he'd, yep. he'd do whatever you wanted him to do. Yep. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it, it might just be one or two guys. So rather than an ambush, uh, I had a, a 22 pistol with a silencer. Yep. And I might just shoot him in the thigh. I'd shoot the guy in the thigh, and then the thumper would unload on him. We'd, you know, drug him up and off we'd go with him. But, you know, I I shot one in the thigh one time and I, I hit the digum artery in his leg. You know, so we ended up bleeding out before we could get him back. So, you know, I had some, you know, incidents like that that caused me not to get back with, with the guy being alive. And there were a couple of times when I crawled out um, into a grassy field where a bunch of them were trying to, to take us out and just yep. kind of went one-on-one with them, but I was injured at that time. And, and with both of those guys, I ended up having to shoot them because I, I just yep. didn't have the strength to overpower them. And, and, so, and that's what's interesting is that people people don't understand, you know, whether whether it might be, um, you know, non, non-special operations people, not military people, or people that don't truly understand the dynamics on the ground um, of why it is you – who that person is you're trying to bring out and it's i think it's helpful you know letting everyone know all the all the listeners who might be you know listening into dr thompson what he's saying is that the people that that he's talking about uh having to engage having to having to to shoot because he's battling out with them these are these are these are enemy soldiers these are enemy soldiers that we try to to capture to bring out alive to help us with intelligence uh to help us refine our targeting packages Etc. Etc. These people are not coming out willingly. You know, these, no. are, not, these, these are not people that, uh, if you let this person go, they are going to do everything they can to kill you and your team. Uh, you know, so um, you know, I just want to make sure that the folks understand that when we talk about, you know, having to, you know, you, you know, 
you know, try to control someone in that, in that capacity, it's because it's literally, it's your life for that person's. Um, and, and I had a commander ask me once in Afghanistan, this was, uh, 2000, this might've been 2004. Uh, he asked me, Hey, Ron, can't you, can't you get them out? Can't you get them out alive? Can't you go in there and, and can't, can't, can't this be, instead of being just a kill mission, it's a capture mission. And my response was, uh, I, I understand what it is you're saying. I understand what, it, what the value that we could get, you know, the, the intelligence we would gain, but here's what I want you to remember. They have a vote. So, and, and because they have a vote, that's what changes the dynamic. So if they, if, if, if they vote the wrong way, then they're probably not coming out. Yeah, I, I mean, we we had one and, you know, everything was going pretty well. Uh, one of the indigenous team members had a hold of him and we had to come out on strings. They had to pull us up through the canopy on on ropes this, and flies this, back. This, yeah, the spy rig. Yep. Yeah. So we're I mean, we're at 3000 feet and and the the guy starts to bite my guy. I mean, he starts to bite chunks out of his face yep. and kicking and trying to get away and headbutting him. And my guy finally just turned him loose. Yep. I mean, 3,000 feet. And he just yep. said, you know, I, I'm not taking this anymore. He turned him loose. No, he's gonna, yeah, he's going to kill you. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that – and the other thing is not just that guy that's going to do whatever he can to not go. His people are not going to let him go. Yep. His people had rather kill him than let him, you know, be taken prisoner. That's right. So it's it's a job to get one of them out alive. I mean, there are a lot of teams who who were very successful. Um, you know, I just um, seem to run into some problems yep. from time to time. And, and the it, other the other ahead. dynamic is not no, I cut you off. Is I wanted to get this in is that it's when you're when you're when you have you're going against an enemy that is willing to die to kill you that's 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 a that's a pretty interesting situation to be in you know yeah. when you're when you're going up against people that are willing to whether whether it's they're wearing they're wearing uh suicide vests or they're wearing whatever in whatever capacity they're willing to do it they're willing to give up their life to try to take yours that's a tough one to combat yeah and it, yeah you know i i try to tell people sometimes you you got to remember these, this is not just some little guy that was walking down the street. Yep. Uh, this is an enemy soldier. And, you know, I mean, it is combat when you go after him. Uh, it, he's going to kill you or you're going to yes. kill him or get him incapacitated enough that you can get him out. But it, yeah. you're, not, it, you're not going after some innocent no. civilian. No. And, and it's, the type of, it's the type of enemy soldier that is, is if, he, if he had you. If he captures you, he's going to skin you alive. Oh yeah, right. And and yeah. that's a huge difference. Um, you know, people talk about like, um, and and obviously not not to like advocate torture or anything that doesn't make any sense. Um, but there's just instances where, uh, and I, I guess this mainly comes from civilians where people are talking about something online, like something happened, you know, people are debating on Facebook or something like that. And they'll say things like, well, oh, this is really bad because 
um, you know, now when they capture, an, if they capture an American on the battlefield, you know, they're, they're going to treat them badly. But it's like, if they capture an American on the battlefield, they're probably going to torture them to death, you know? So it's like, but before any of these particular incidents took place, um, and, and that's not to excuse any bad behavior uh, by anybody, but, um, you know, I think guys know that, you know, when they get captured, it's it's a real bad situation. And uh, e- even particularly for Vietnam, um, there's been a number of guys who have escaped captivity. Um, and there was a really good book written by a, a special forces colonel, Nick Rowe, uh, about his situation. Um, but I think his situation was unique because of the location that he was being held and that he was able to escape. Um, uh, but yeah, so did you guys ever have any any missions where you went after POW camps? Yes. Um, one of the worst missions I had was going after a, POW, a group of POWs that were being moved north, and the intel had picked up uh, that they were being moved, and we went in to get them. But, um, it, and that's the mission where... Um, I told you that the the female talked to me on the radio because they already knew we were coming after him. So, um, yeah, that it didn't go well. So we didn't we didn't get them. We we barely got out the next day. But um, yeah, but we had we had some other teams that uh, I think down south they might have had a team that, that actually recovered one or two, but. Um, you know, I I wasn't ever that fortunate. Yeah, and and we did uh, in 2010. Uh, there were two uh, uh, Navy guys in Afghanistan. I don't know if you remember this. You might remember the story, but they had they had left in a vehicle. It was an armored uh, Land Cruiser, white Land Cruiser, um, and uh, they had driven from Kabul down. Uh, into uh, Logar province and uh, they were ambushed and then uh, they were they were captured I don't know if that rings a bell or not this would have been uh, this would have been I guess maybe uh, July 2010 um, end of July early August something like that Um, so so here we are uh, and I was the the strike force master chief there uh, at the base uh at the time and you know we got word that there's there's two missing americans so that immediately for us uh that you know the missions the the tone in the camp is completely different when that information is out um so what happened was is uh you immediately just basically shift you shift gears to uh recovery you know you shift gears to okay we need to you know it, it, it first and foremost is uh is a hostage rescue missions, which is a, uh, you know, the hostage rescue template is much different than the, uh, capture kill, uh, template. Your, your, the, the, the methods and the techniques that you apply to do those things are, are different for obvious reasons. Um, so we started going after these guys, uh, basically, uh, we had a troop from, from Delta join us. Uh, so it was us and a troop of us troop from uh, Delta and we were doing round the clock, basically a day and a night, uh, strike force, um, you know, for, I think about five or six days, 
trying to find these guys. So we'd basically get a, a piece of intel. Uh, we'd look at it. Okay, who, where, where's the intel from? Uh, where is it leading to? Okay, it's this compound. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Get on the birds. Let's go. Let's hit it now. I mean, it's it's literally that fast. I mean, you just have because they're moving them from compound to compound. And if they put them in, you know, you think of Afghanistan or like anywhere else, you put them in a they put them in a in a vehicle. And if they get in a vehicle and they get on the road, that you're never going to see that person again. You know, so we were trying to keep them contained. So <laughs> basically, we hit all these compounds night after night. You know, in, in the army guys were hitting stuff during the daytime in this this small village, this kind of built up area. But what ended up happening is, is they, you know, they they ended up executing both of the both of the guys, and then it turned into a. Uh, over a recovery for for both of them and then we had to we act we we recovered them and, and and flew them actually flew their bodies to bagram and and dignified transfer of both of them so that, that way they could get uh you know get their remains could be sent back home yeah if i could just say one thing um that our audience might not know this it was kind of interesting about sog and that was um, you know, when you volunteer to go anywhere, do anything, then you discover that when you go somewhere to do something, um, there's no ID card, no dog tags, nothing that identifies you as part of the United States. You are on your own, um, and you're told that before you go on the mission. If you're captured, Geneva Convention doesn't apply to you. Not that it does most of the time anyway, but it doesn't apply to you. Um, and, it, you know, you can be executed as a spy immediately. You you have no rights if, if they catch you. And um, would you be able to uh, walk us through one of your missions, Dr. Thompson, like maybe from start to finish? Okay. Um, we can do that. Okay. I told you about the first one. Um, let me give you one. I'll go back to the, to the POW one. Uh, we, we thought that, uh, some, a group of about 10 POWs were being moved north. So they, had my team prepared to to be inserted to go try to find them and and recover the Americans. We went to um, they moved us out to a launch site that was close to uh, the DMZ and and the border uh, with Laos. And you know, so we would go to a launch site, and that's where we'd get your get the final <clears throat> mission briefing with. All the pilots, the Air Force meteorologists, and all these people we had that looked at weather and, and everything for us. Um, so we were up there getting ready to launch that morning, and we had a team uh, that was already out. And they had moved to uh, a landing zone to be extracted, and they were overrun. And one of the... Um, uh, indigenous members of the team came up on the guard frequency and said the team had been overrun. Everybody was dead except for him and one other. Uh, and, you know, call what we, we 
the term we used was prairie, prairie fire emergency. And that meant that all of a sudden everything in the air became yours if it was in range and still had armament on it. Um, so we had a, a platoon size element that was there for a different mission. They launched them to go out to the area to try to find this team or the remainder of the team. Uh, they couldn't get off the LZ. They were immediately pinned down on the LZ. Uh, so then they brought me in and said, you know, Thompson, your mission just changed. Uh, you're now the bright light team. We're going to put you in on a different LZ to go try to find the team that was overrun. Um, you know, so it was a hot insertion. You know, we had to had to prep the, the landing zone before we could go in, but you couldn't prep it very far out because you wasn't sure where that team might be. But we had to suppress the fire enough that we could, you know, get on ground on the ground. We took the choppers were taking hits on the way in, uh, we fought our way in for the next 18 hours uh, as we were trying to find, you know, this team or the remains of the team. Uh, we were just constantly making contact with the bad guys. Um, so, I mean, that went on until the next afternoon uh, when finally it, it, the force was just so large we couldn't couldn't do anything and they decided that we had to be extracted so they brought us back out so that that's an example of what we call a bright light team so if it if a team gets overrun you put another team in right away uh, to try to find them so that caused a, a delay in the pow mission so we had to go back to uh cnn and um go back down there and refit you know, I had some people banged up and wounded, so I had to replace them and some other team members, uh, get everything ready to go back and do the other mission. Um, so then we we finally, it was about two weeks before we got to launch in on the other mission uh, to find the POWs. And, <coughs> excuse me. So we inserted, got on the ground, we moved away and, and stopped. Um, because it was dark. <clears throat> we normally didn't move once it got dark. You went into uh, your main overnight position, put out all your Claymore mines, put out all of your defenses. Uh, you were in a, a fairly tight little perimeter. You could touch the person on your right and left. Um, and we were set up uh, uh, waiting on daylight so we could start moving again. And uh, it was really dark and the clouds were starting to move move in and i was kind of leaned up against the tree i had my weapon across my lap where i normally slept and i heard a heard a twig break in front of me and i thought what is that i mean that sounded like someone stepped on a twig inside the perimeter how could anyone had walked in you know through our perimeter and be inside of it now but it was so dark i couldn't see anything and i heard another twig break and then i realized there was a person walking very slowly and they were walking directly toward me and they were going to step on me and i thought okay if if i light him up it's going to light me up and his buddies are going to hose me down so i can't shoot him i can't get to my knife without 
you know, making some noise the way I'm positioned right now. So I decided to just let him keep coming. And once he was close enough that I thought I could just reach up and grab him, that I would grab him by the shirt. I'd jam the barrel of the gun in the side of his head. I'd take him to the ground. Uh, if he yelled, if he fired his weapon, then I'd fire off three or four rounds into his head. But if he didn't say anything, I wouldn't shoot him. And then I would figure out what to do. So, <clears throat> so I, I could feel the air pressure as he was coming toward me. Uh, I mean, I could I could see in my mind the silhouette right in front of me. And when I thought it was within range, I just leaned forward, shot my left hand out, grabbed hold of his shirt, crammed a gun in the side of his head, and that made him off balance. I pulled him down to the ground, and he didn't say a word. But he's sitting there bleeding because I've hit him in the side of the head so hard with that muzzle that he's bleeding. And and then I heard him say, you know, in, in Vietnamese, he started saying, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, lights, lights. And I'm thinking, what? What is he saying? What lights? And I realized we had taken a Vietnamese captain, uh, um, Arvin, uh, yeah. Army Army captain out with us on this mission, and it was him. And he, didn't, he didn't realize he couldn't move. And, you know, once you go down for the night, you don't move because you got yeah. somebody's going to knife you or or something. Uh, but now I've got him down, and I'm trying to figure what is he saying about lights. Uh. And when I look up, I look up the ridge, and the ridge kind of went up for a ways, several hundred meters, and then it veered off to the left up toward the top of the mountain. And as far as I could see from the top of the mountain coming down were lights. Oh, lights coming down. They were carrying uh, lanterns, I think, what they actually had. It wasn't flashlights, but, you know, and I don't know how many people were in between each lantern, but they were, you know, 100, 200 lanterns that I could see coming down the ridge line right toward us. And the ridge line is very steep. You can't get off to the side, you know, where, where we are. And then I looked down the ridge down toward the valley and i can see the same thing coming up toward us from the valley you know and and we're in the center and and that you know i talked to the to the vietnamese lady uh, who told us that we all died that night so then i get a call you know from from our headquarters saying uh you are now a prairie fire emergency and i'm thinking how do they know all this They'd yeah. been monitoring the radio traffic. They had heard all the whole thing. Uh, and the North Vietnamese had transmitted that they had us trapped. Yeah. They were coming, closing in to, to take us out. Um, so they were trying to scramble assets to get to us, but the clouds had moved down, uh, and, and there was no way for them to provide any uh, you know really close-in air support now or to, to get us extracted. So, and the bad guys are, are – Closing in on us. Eventually, just a short story. Uh, I was able to use something they called at that time combat um, sky spots, where F4s would come by, flying by radar, and you know we would give them coordinates, and they would attempt using radar to put the bombs on that position. And you'd start about three thousand meters out. And just give them directions. Yeah, because you didn't know where they were going to really put them. Yeah. 
And it was a good thing because they hit about that first bomb hit about 1500 meters out. But, you know, we use those on uh, the ridge line on both sides of us um, for a pretty good while, you know, yeah. most of the night. And we had contact and and, uh, and then we had uh, Marine gunships who came in, tried to. They shot the first one down, so they had to back off. Uh, anyway, later, that's when I had to use the guard frequency to talk to an F-4 and say, do yep. you have any CBU cluster bomb units yep. on board? And they said, yeah, I mean, we got some. And I said, put it on me. Yep. I mean, they, they're running over. I mean, just put it on us. And if I come back up on the radio and talk to you, uh, don't put any more here. <laughs> I'll tell your buddy uh, to go around. But yep. if I don't come back up, have your buddy put his here too. And that broke broke up the attack and allowed us to, to move off of there uh, and eventually get out later that day. But uh, – that was supposed to be a mission, you know, to go find the, the POWs, but it didn't work out that way. Yeah. Um, How many guys was, on that team? Uh, we had put two teams together, so I had about 20 guys. And and then when we got we got down to, to an LZ, and there's a 500-pound bomb sticking in the LZ with a fin sticking up out of the dirt that didn't go off. So... Now we've got to bring the aircraft in to pick us up, you know, in a firefight with a bomb sitting in on the LZ. Um, but they finally did. We got everybody out. So it took a while because, you know, it, it took five aircraft, you know, to, to lift us out. So, oh, it's, it's interesting. How, and how many would you put on? How many would you put on each bird then? Only like four or five? Yeah, because of the, the altitude and the temperature. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 Look, you know, as soon as, as soon as the al- you start to go up in altitude yep. or temperature or both, uh, all of a sudden, I mean, even with the the uh, um, the big, you know, jolly greens that we used on some of the yep. insertions, yep. we put three or four guys. That's all we could put on one of those things. Yeah. You know, exactly. Because, but they also had the, you know, they had the fifteen hundred pounds of armor plating the extra armors, and all yeah, that. Yep. And then you know, going on a long trip. You know, toward North Vietnam and into the mountains, they could only care about three three of us because. Interesting. You know, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize it was that it was that high over there because it was uh, in the in the mountains in Afghanistan. Yeah, if you're if we're if you're doing things at at you know if you're using a forty seven at two thousand feet, uh, uh, you know, then you've got lift. You could put you could put, you could put thirty guys on that thing. But if you're gonna if you're going to take off at 2,000 feet and go up into Konar in the mountains and you're going to try to infill at 10,000 feet, um, then you're going to have problems, you know, and then you're only going to be able to, to take off at 10,000 feet with, with half of that load. Yeah. I mean, the, the load capacity you know, goes down very quickly. Yep. Um, but, you know, our, our temperature uh, – was kind of like yours most i mean we it was 100 110 degrees during the day yep uh with with very high humidity and you know dropped down to uh 85 degrees at night and you freeze to death yep uh, yep that's crazy that, that's crazy to think that 85 degrees is is freezing yeah. right and yeah. when you get you get wet. pulled out on the <laughs> right. you get pulled out on the strings on the ropes under that helicopter, I mean, there was, there was one extraction where we had to fly at 
7,000 feet AGL uh, (laughs) hanging on the end of that rope, hanging under a helicopter, flying at 80 or 90 knots. We almost froze to death. I mean, we we thought we were going to get frostbite because our bodies were not prepared for that kind of temperature and then wind chill, um, you know, just to get your attention. It's amazing, and then John, for I don't know if you've done any uh, like uh, free fall parachuting or anything like yeah. that. Um, you know, when you when you're taking off, when you're going up in the aircraft, you know, you're and it's you're you're like I think of like parachuting in the summertime. Basically, you you take off and it's 100 degrees and you're hot and you're sweating and you got this perious heavy uncomfortable parachute on and and you're now you're crammed on the on this bird and. Um, and then the bird takes off, but the, you know, the ramps like halfway open, we'd leave the ramp like halfway <laughs> open. And then after you, you know, you're going up, you're going up 3,000, 4,000, five, five, 6,000 feet. Okay. Now it starts to re- cool off and now you're right. like, Oh, it's not so bad. Like, <laughs> and you get up to, uh, but yeah, you get up the, obviously the higher you go, yeah, the colder it gets. And, and I can't imagine with, with uh, Dr. Thompson there, if you're getting spy rigged out and then taken up to 7,000 feet AGL and then. And then you add the forward speed of the aircraft to it for the for the wind chill. Um, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna get chilly pretty quick. So um, yeah. can you just and you're ex- hanging on the end of that rope and you're oscillating back and forth and you're watching the rope rub back and forth on the edge of the helicopter yep. floor and thinking, wow, how long is it gonna be before it cuts <laughs> yeah. through? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm can sorry, you, I interrupted. No, that's fine. That's fine. Can you just explain for the audience who might not know exactly what that means? Like, what, what, when you guys are are on this rope uh, under the helicopter, can you just kind of explain that? Well, you know, very often you can't find a a, a place where a helicopter can land uh, in the in the jungle. So, for us to be able to get out, the helicopter would come hover over our position and. They would push um, ropes out with a sandbag on the end of it. The sandbag would penetrate through the canopy, and there would be um, a, a loop, either a big loop on the end of the the rope that we could, you know, pull up and, and set on uh, to be lifted out. Or sometimes, if we had on a a stable harness, we could actually snap onto the end of the rope, and then they would try to lift us straight up you know, through the jungle canopy. And once we got clear of the canopy, then they would start moving forward. Um, They just never managed to do that. They would start moving forward before we got out, um, you know, and start dragging us through the tree limbs. And almost (laughs) always you you would be under fire. I mean, because the bad guys don't want you to leave and you're hanging on the end of a, a rope and fighting tree limbs and twisting around trying to shoot back every once in a while over your shoulder. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it would just, you know, and that, beat and you that's, up. And that's basically the same way that it's, it's done today. So they'll, the right. same thing. Like, so we'll yeah. be on the ground. Um, the it's, you know, whether it's a Hawk or a 47, or whatever, will come over and, and same thing. They'll toss this, um, and the rope is, it's called a spy, uh, they call it a, you know, if people, if the audience looks it up, it's called a spy rig. It's a like special purpose uh, insertion extraction. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a white rope that's got, um, the new ones have these uh, like D-rings, metal, uh, you know, metal D-rings that are in the, in the middle of the rope at like, at like eight foot intervals, right? So, um, so you can put like, 
eight, uh, two, let me see, two, four, six, eight. You could probably put, I think you could put 10 guys on a, on that rope before it's, you know, before we're talking about like getting anywhere close to, to, to near it. I mean, these are, these are thick ropes. These are inch and a half in diameter. Uh, you know, you could probably pull a tank with these things. I don't know what they're, what they're rated to. Uh, all I know is that I never broke one, so I must not be, I must not be that heavy. Uh, so, but yeah, they, they drop that thing down through the trees and you hook up to it and then you call them uh, you call the bird on the radio and you, you tell them you're, Hey, you're ready to go. And, um, they slowly start to take off and lift you up off the ground. And then they, yeah, then you got to do like Dr. Thompson saying, then now you got to clear the branches at the top of the damn trees. So th- this is a technique that was pioneered by SOG in Vietnam and then it's still used uh, today for special operations. Yep. yep. Yeah, it's uh, it's better, I think, today. I mean, we just used the little, you know, three-quarter inch climbing ropes, um, you know, 120 feet long. So, I mean, we had to have one rope for each person. Um, so usually we didn't pick up more than four people at a, you know, per bird that was lifting you out. But, um yeah, it's uh, it's interesting trying to get out because they they really don't want you to leave uh, or at least not leave without holes in you. So they're trying to shoot at you and trying to hit you. Yeah, that's amazing. So I, I wanted to ask, um, this is something that's very unique to um, to Mac V. Sog and probably something that uh, for Ron, he's would have some interest in um but i don't know if this was still happening by the time that you were there but um guys had to go through a um what was called recondo school i I can't remember if that was just for special forces in general or if that was for sog directly um do you have any experience with recondo school or are you able to talk about it at all I, i didn't go um i just didn't have time it was it was something that was available, you know, to us if we if we had the time to go. It was extra training, uh, and and when I was there, the the Recondo School um, was one of the only official military schools that had live fire shoot back targets. Right. So on your on your little final exam at the end of the week, you went out. Uh, on a patrol and you know bad guys were out there where they would go so it wasn't unusual for uh you know a student to get wounded you know as he was uh on his final exam but uh it, i didn't i didn't get to go on that and i didn't get to go on the um uh the one zero or the team leader course and because they said you're a ranger you don't need to um i don't know that that was true but um that was what I was told. And the, that team leader course was, was that kind of similar to a condo school, or was that just academic? It was. It was much more focused on uh, SOG kind of missions. You know, how do how do you run a, a SOG team? They got to uh, be extracted. You know, on the string, so they they got a chance to do that before they were actually in in combat. Uh, so there were there were some things like that that they got to do that I didn't you know I hadn't done before, um, but I would like to have gone. But you know they put me on a team and put me to work. Right. Um, 
so can, can we also talk about like uh, some of the things you had done after leaving Vietnam? Um, yeah, when when I uh, left Vietnam, I had orders uh, to go to the Ranger Department. So you know, people ask me a lot of times about what was the transition like? Why? How did they transition you from a combat zone um, back to, you know, peacetime? And I said, well, you know, basically they said, here are your orders. Uh, report to Fort Benning to the ranger school. And, and that was my transition, um, which, you know, I – you know, I, I I do a lot with suicide prevention and supporting the vets and the police, and I, I do a lot with that. I have you know people all around the country that you know support me. We do our 22 push-ups every day, and things like that to to support and raise awareness and different fundraising things. I think there's a lot that you've got to do to help people trans transition back rather than. You just give them a new assignment. But anyway, I went to uh, Fort Benning. I became a ranger instructor in the mountains up in uh, Dahlonega, Georgia. So um, I was an instructor there with with people getting ranger qualified. And, and we had, from time to time, we'd have groups of, of SEALs who would come up and go through the training and um, – laugh at the physical exercise the whole time well we uh, we we did that as punishment for him yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, you know we there's a the mountain a mountaineering phase of it um there's a big mountain up there called yana mountain and it's about a mile and a half from the bottom to, uh, to the top um and the the normal ranger students would be trucked up to the top uh, the seals would insist that that they got off the truck at the bottom of the mountain and they would run in formation up to the top. And uh, <laughs> holy cow! I mean, it was, <laughs> I mean, it it was always you know it was always fun you know having those guys you know come through it, to give you you know a different perspective on on the training and and the fitness levels and and just attitude. Uh, so anyway, um, so I, I stayed there for about eight months. I got orders to go back. I was going back to SOG. Um, but then a couple of weeks before I left, my orders were changed to, to stay uh, at the Ranger um, School. At that time, you had to have combat uh, experience to be a Ranger instructor. And people were getting out of the army so fast, you know, once they got back from Vietnam, they were getting out. They wanted nothing else to do with the army. So uh, there were there were about a dozen of us that, you know, were sent back to the ranger camp. And so I stayed there um, for, I guess, another two years and went to the infantry officer advanced course, went to Korea. I had a a provisional ranger company there that the division commander put together um, just because he could and because he wanted one and and uh, I had kind of talked him into it so got to do a, a lot of stuff uh, in in Korea um, came back from there went to Fort Bragg 
at Fort Bragg. I commanded a, a basic training company there until uh, I got on the emergency readiness deployment exercise evaluation team uh, for the special ops group. So I would uh, evaluate special forces and ranger uh, battalions. So, and particularly if they had a halo team, I'd evaluate the halo team. So that was a lot of fun. We'd set up all these, you know, really neat exercises for them, show up at one o'clock in the morning, hand a CQ a set of orders that says you've just been activated, you know, wheels up in two hours. And, you know, we'd go off for several days and put them through an exercise and evaluate them. And that was, uh, that was pretty cool. Um, and then I went to an ROTC assignment. Then I I went to Leavenworth, worked on, went to the school, but then stayed there as a senior leadership instructor and worked on um, the concept for uh, what was called at that time Airland Battle 2000, how the military was going to fight uh, war in the 21st century. So... I got to work on a lot of things around you know, stress, uh, sleep deprivation, endurance, uh, building high-performing teams, high-performing leadership. Uh, got to do some really cool things, and then came back to um, to a, a final ROTC assignment and got out. That's twenty-one years. And, and Dr. Thompson, what I'd be curious, your your uh, so you know, so based on your not only your experience that you have in in, in Vietnam and in the in the MACB SOG elements, and in conjunction with everything else that you've done, and then your your study on essentially like the uh, you know resiliency and uh, uh, you know special operations troops who are under extreme amounts of stress for long periods of time. Is there um, is there a is there is there a way that you can uh, is there a way that you can test uh, for people who are uh, predisposed to being super resilient or is that something you think that you just you just find out through uh, through experience? There's some there's some ways to to get a good indication of the people who you know can can make it through selection. Um, who have have that mindset and i i got to the point where it's really a mindset people who can do that who can endure who can push and drive and they're going to finish the mission one way or another Mm -hmm. Um, that's a special type of person and and it's a mindset that they have i do um i do iron man races and you know it's i don't know if you familiar with that but it's you know a two 2.4 mile yeah. swim 112 mile bike yes and 26 you know mile run since you finished better, that it's a mindset yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know, and i tell the people i coach it's a mindset it's 50 yeah. percent physical it's 90 percent mental yeah. you know if your mind can tell your body to keep going you'll keep going um, you can do so much more than you think you can do, but most people have no clue what they can do. But but you, the guys you find in in special ops, 
they have that mindset. I yeah. mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, you that's how they get through, you know, the, the SEAL training. They get through buds. They get through all that stuff because they have the mindset. If they don't have the mindset, they don't make it. It, it, yeah, it's it, it's interesting, and I and I you know in my time that I was able to serve in the selection and training for the counterterrorism organization, it was a, you know the same thing. There is that basically the more that you're around the people, the more people you interview, the more people that you screen, um, the more uh, folks that you put into the pipeline. Is that you know not only having served in the organization for years and years, uh, but it's there's you know people ask me if i can tell uh you know my wife and i will meet people out in town or friends of mine will meet people and and they'll say you know so and so is thinking about doing a career special operations or doing this or doing that and they say you know of course if they you know what do you think ron what do you think you think you think you make it and uh and you know i i you know first response you know i have no idea because i don't know you know the you know i don't know how that person is under stress uh, but, and then my second response is, is that there's, you know, there are some people that have the, the look in their eyes. Um, yeah. and, and I, it's, I, I'm not, I don't, I can't like, I couldn't show somebody like what that or teach somebody what that look is. Um, it's just something that I recognize, um, when I see people as to whether or not, whether it is they're looking you directly in the eye or whether it is a way that they're. I, 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 it's hard for me to put my finger on it, but there's, there's a way that the guys who are, who you, who are going to make it the way that they, they, they look, um, the way that their eyes look. Um, and I've, I've always noticed that, um, cause I think that the eyes are, are a, a connector to that, the qualities that, that you're speaking of. Yeah. And I mean, you, besides being one, You've been around people uh, enough with that who have that mindset that you sense it when you get around someone else, and I mean you you can feel it, you can see it, like you say in their eyes. You you it, it's there. Now yep. they might choose to do something different, uh, but you can usually you can pick out the ones who have that capability if they just if they choose to do it. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think, you know, I think you have to have help people realize that they have it sometimes uh, and realize how far they they can go or at least push them out in that direction. Because most people just they don't realize how much is left. They think they're done and and they're not. They're not. That's and that's one of the phrases that I that I often used um, in the whether it's the selection and training environment or the or the you know life after the military environment of of you know the it's you get a lot of enjoyment out of, of being in the, uh, uh, the 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 training and development role because you get you 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 enable people how to do things that they didn't think that they could do um, you know they they have the ability they just didn't they didn't think they could do it. And when you show them that they can do it, then yeah. they just, then they just, they, they just, you know, of course now they're, they're, uh, it just raises, raises their individual satisfaction levels. And then it, it subsequently raises the performance levels. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I used to tell them, you know, I'd hear people say, I'm, I'm done. I can't go any further. Sure. You can. No, I can't. Okay. 
you see the curb up there, uh, you know, about 50 feet out in front of us? Run to that curb. If you can't make it all the way, crawl. Get to that curb. You can do it. And then when you get to that curb, we'll pick out another goal for you. You just, sometimes you have to keep shortening the goals. I mean, when I when I walk down to the water to start that swim, I'm not thinking, I've got 140.6 miles to go before I can take a break. Yeah. I'm thinking, I just have to get to that first buoy out there. It's about 200 meters. And when I get there, I'll go to the next one, to the next yeah. one, to the next one. And eventually... I'll be crawling up on the shore and running for the bike. Yep. And then I'll I'll set goals to get me through the bike, to get me through the run, and then it's over. Yeah. Yeah. So Yeah. It's all those things that everybody that uh, you know, you you read online that everybody so, you know, so easily and readily defines as like the best qualities of being a, you know, in a uh, what is it that de- that develops a true leader is just resiliency and perseverance and all these things. Um but when somebody is actually doing it, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's different. There's a lot of people that can, that can say it, but there's not a lot of people that will do it. Right. And, you know, the kinds of things that, you know, you're talking about doing, uh, most people are not going to do that. I mean, they, it, when people are shooting at you, I, I, I got a little video clip that I chose sometimes when I'm talking to groups about, you know, uh, decision-making under high stress. And, you know, there are a lot of bullets coming, you know, at this position where this person is. And I, I had a guy ask me, he said, well, how long does it take you to um, train a special ops guy to stick his head up with all those bullets coming and shoot? And I said, it, it doesn't take any time. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, the time, the time it takes is for me to say, you, you can't keep your head up there. Yep. You know, you're going to get shot, yep. uh, you know, so I'm trying to get him to keep his head down some. Now, with with normal people, yeah, they're not going to stick their head up once that st- they start cracking by them and hitting all around them. Yep. They're not going to do that. But a special ops guy, he thinks he's going to do that because yep. he's strange. <laughs> he's got yes. a different mindset. Yep. That's you know? yeah, that's that's the state. You're probably you're probably you're probably actually hunkered down laughing a little bit because you're in this sticky situation. Um, and then you, you wait for a, uh, you, you know what the person on the other end of that gun is doing. So you're just waiting for that opportunity. Like, okay, like he's, he's either going to reload or, or something. He's just, he's just not going to hammer down on that thing for, for now until eternity. So something's going to happen. that's going to enable me to do it. And there's that point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's all fascinating stuff. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I find very interesting to be able to talk to you guys and guys like yourself, um, Dr. Thompson and Ron, is um, a lot of the lessons learned, uh, you know, that you guys have learned through your years in the service and, and combat, uh, they can be applied to other aspects of life. And um, and if that's just being resilient and, you know, going through a tough time and getting over it and uh, you know, just trying your best uh, to to do the best that you can do, and 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 that sort of thing. I, I think it's all relevant. It it is, and I tell you, John, it's it's I I see it all the time. Even when I when I'm you know doing things with my you know kids, you know, just turned one, just turned six, or the other one just turned seven. So you know, so now I've got this instead of being the uh, 
instead of being the uh, you know the decorated counterterrorism guy, I'm now the uh, uh, the undecorated uh, you know uh, <laughs> father of uh, two, 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 two little kids. Uh, so it's it's a humbling experience, there, obviously. But but the, yeah, that's that's exactly it. And now you've got you know it goes back to the the communication thing and the and the uh, uh, being calm, like on the radio that that we were talking about earlier, is that. You know, when things happen, uh, whether it's around uh, your children or anybody else, is it, you know, you know, if you, people are looking for someone to be calm under pressure. Right. And and as human beings, I think we just naturally gravitate towards that person who is calm under pressure. And and you can see it in, in all these different environments where where people get they're on either they're on television and they get flustered and they say something that's hurtful towards somebody or they they do something in the spur of the moment that they're going to regret. Um, but then you have that person that um, is is thinking for a second. They're taking us, you know, they're not taking too long to think, but they're taking a little bit, you know, a second or two just to quickly process the information. And then they react. Right. Then they speak. Um, you know, then they provide input. And that. uh that has a big impact, I think, on developing people into whether it's your kids or people that you work with, uh, developing into them into leaders so that they right. recognize that, hey, there, there is there's something going on here. There's a method to the madness. And, and, and a lot of that has to do with that communication delivery. Well, yeah, that's a great point, because um, at jobs that I've worked in, in the past, there was people in leadership positions where they would just get flustered by like the smallest problems. Like if, if if things were fine, then everything was smooth. But once there yep. was some kind of issue, it's like this person would just get flustered, and they're sort of um sort of negative energy would then trickle yeah. down to the rest of the team. Yeah. And it's just like, dude, like it, you just take an take a second or so, you know, just how you said, and you you work out how you're going to deal with it and then you just yep. deal with it and then the problem is solved and, and everybody's happy. Right. And so exactly. And, and, and people are people, right. And, and, and every one of us knows, knows someone exactly like the person you just described. Yeah. You know, every one of us does. Yeah. It's, it, it's fascinating. Um, and, um, you know, I, I appreciate you guys, uh, uh, coming on to do this, uh, you know, it's it's really fascinating to um, to hear from uh, yourself, Dr. Thompson, uh, for your experiences. You know, the the guys who like you and your, the guys you serve with uh, <coughs> done an incredible job. And um, you know, Vietnam veterans really kind of got a raw deal uh, coming home. Um, you know, so we appreciate everything you guys have done, and I, I thank both of you for uh, coming on here, and I want to thank both of you for your service as well. Hey, I, I tell you, I want to I want to jump in here first because I need to thank Dr. Thompson as well. Um, you know, I can tell you, sir, that it's uh, my uh, very humbling uh, experience for me to to hear your stories and your uh, you know the differences and experiences and the things that that you had to endure at the age that you endured and, and you persevered in doing them. And uh, you know, like you, thank you for your service, greatly appreciate it. Um, glad you you know made it home safe, but then you're able to share the stories with uh, folks like us and others, so that that we can learn from them. Yeah, I really really appreciate you, Ryan, and your service, and 
the things that, that you've done and continue to do and um, you know nothing but but admiration for you and your your brothers out there that, that's doing this and the guys who are still out there keeping us safe at night now so um, you know, we, we've got to find a way to take care of them we've got to take care of the, the 22 vets a day who are you know losing their battle um, yep. I think there are things that you know people like us who who got through it and survived that can do to help them and uh, we just gotta get that awareness raised and uh, hang on to those guys I mean, they made a very valuable contribution and we can't can't let them go so i appreciate everything you've done i've really enjoyed talking to you today this has been great john you've done a super job thank you for having me on i really yeah, appreciate thank you, john. it
Thank you.